Let's pray together. Father above, you are God, and you're in control of everything. You're in control of this morning down to which passage we're reading and what we should hear. We're so thankful that you've given us your word so that we are not left week by week to consider man's latest opinion, but we have your eternal and enduring word. By it, we hear from you. By it, we are instructed for life. This morning, we have read from wisdom, and we pray that we would be wise enough to hear it. Wisdom is crying aloud. Let us stand in silence and sit in reverence and listen to your word, lest we hear it and deceive ourselves by not doing it, but instead let us be changed by it. Let all of this culminate in greater faith in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. There's a temple in Rajasthan in northern India where people come from all over to worship a goddess named Karnimada. Now, what's peculiar about this particular temple is not just that once you get inside, you'll find an idol to this goddess, but rather that what you find else in the temple. What you find else is rats, and not just a few of them, not one or two of them, but 15,000 of them. And that's because the worshipers of Karnimada believe that they are reincarnated into rats. And so scurrying around on the floor here, there, and everywhere are fathers and mothers and family members and ancestors. And so the devotees of Karnimada offer food to the rats. They eat and drink with the rats. They let the rats run over them and over their children. They take off their shoes so as to not injure the rats and thereby offend their goddess. If you have a weak stomach, you do not want to watch the National Geographic video that I did seeing the devotion and worship of Karnimada. Now, you hear that and you go, Karnimada is a strange god, right? A weird deity, and it also makes you go, with all due respect, idols are stupid, right? Now, it's not just that one particular one, because it's not just that strange gods and goddesses appear in some parts of the world. For example, if you read, as I did this week, in another part of Asia, there's a temple where the worshipers come every week and they offer in that temple toy airplanes. So if you go in, the entire ground is covered with toy airplanes because they believe that it will ensure that the gods will then give them a visa whereby they can go overseas and have a better life. And so these toy airplanes are literally their ticket to a better life. Or I read of other parts of the world where devotees and worshipers allow their bodies to be cut in bloodletting rituals in devotion to their gods. You could keep going on and on and on, but here's what we'd say. Sitting on this side of the planet, with all due respect for other people's places and cultures, it sounds so strange to us as we consider what people will do for their gods. Now let me give you one more. Let me tell you about the worshipers of a god called Mammon. Now, Mammon has followers all over the world, but he is especially worshipped by a people group called Americans. And this god is so precious to the Americans that they will sacrifice their time, their health, their sleep, their spouses, even their children on an altar for more of Mammon. They love Mammon, 
and trust in mammon and worship mammon and are devoted to mammon. And therefore, sometimes worshipers of mammon will lie and cheat and steal and oppress others and even kill in the name and for their God. And that's because the people group known as the Americans deeply believed that mammon can give them safety and security. That if they have mammon, then they will be safe and nothing bad will happen and their future will be bright. They trust in mammon because they believe deeply that mammon can give them control and power. They serve mammon because they believe that mammon can give them status and honor and a place in society. Mammon is worshipped everywhere. He's worshipped in casinos. He's worshipped on Wall Street, in business boardrooms, in churches. He's worshipped in homes. Mammon is a strange deity. He's a stupid idol. And if you do not recognize the name Mammon, if that sounds foreign to you, he also goes by the name money. Mammon is money. You see, it's easy to see the folly and futility of false gods, except when they're your own. It is easy to see the stupidity of idols until they're the ones that you worship. And friends, we need to hear this is especially true when it comes to our worship of and our trust in and our devotion towards and our love for money. We Americans love money. One preacher recounted that he did a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. Right? So week after week, he's talking about anger or wrath and envy and pride and sloth and lust and all of it. And his wife predicted, you watch, the one on greed will be the least attended. And wouldn't you know, the least attended out of all seven of the deadly sins was greed. Why? Because none of us think we struggle with it. I mean, you think of this. In our church at Seven Mile Road, you get together, if you're a member here, you get together in discipleship groups or these smaller communities where we try to go deep with one another. If you're in this community, you're welcome to join one of these where we try to confess our sins and live honestly with one another. In those settings, you think of what we confess to one another. You have heard people confess pride or laziness. You've heard them tell you about their impatience or their anger, how they lost it with their spouse or their children or their boyfriend or girlfriend. You've heard people confess lust. You've heard people talk through marital struggles and parenting struggles and being single and what that's like. You've, you've heard it all. But can I ask you, when is the last time someone looked at you and said, I really struggle with being greedy? I'm a really materialistic person. When's the last time someone looked at you and said, I live way more lavishly than I need to. I have much more than I need. I have rooms in my house that I don't even use. I have TVs that no one watches. I, I am so struggling with covetousness and envy, and I'm not nearly as generous as I could be or should be. This is a real struggle for me. It, it doesn't happen. And, and wouldn't you think, isn't that something? We live in the richest nation on the planet, in perhaps the richest moment in history, and yet there's no lovers of money. Nowhere. They don't exist. Or, or could it be that we don't see it? 
That after all, when you talk about money, you undoubtedly compare yourself with the people around you. You don't consider the rest of the world. So it's not the reality that nine out of 10 Americans are middle to upper middle class in comparison with the rest of the world. Nine out of 10 of us. But what we do, and undoubtedly, naturally so, is we look at the people around us, and no matter what income bracket you find yourself in, there's always someone who does a little bit better than you. And so, whenever it comes to this, since that's the case, you can always name a few people that love money and trust in mammon and serve and devote it to it and hope in it and bank on wealth. You can name those people, but you surely it's not you. You know them by face. You're thinking of them right now, but it's not you. Well, our passage today wants to help you see, wants to help me see what we are blind to see. Because here's the thing, friends on this side of the planet. It is obvious to us that you don't need to feed rats. It is obvious to us that toy airplanes don't guarantee visas. Well, it is every bit as obvious to the preacher of Ecclesiastes that to make your life about money is pointless and stupid and folly. I want you to hear in this passage, the preacher is not saying that money is bad. Money's not bad. It's just a very bad God. Money's not bad. It's just that mammon won't bring you the satisfaction you're looking for. If you have a Bible, turn it open to 555. That's the page. You'll need to keep it open so that we can walk through these two chapters of chapter 5 and 6. But here's what he says in just verse 10, a sort of a coverall blanket sentence for this passage. He says in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is hevel, vanity, meaningless. Remember, if you're just jumping with us or new on this Sunday, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so far, the preacher, he's the voice in the book of Ecclesiastes, he has been talking one after another of the different places we human beings go to find meaning in life. We live this life under the sun. We've got 70 to 80 laps around the sun at most. And so we need to find something that will give meaning to this life, to our existence. And so he, he chases with us all these different things, whether that be pleasure, whether that be wisdom or philosophy, whether that be family or some kind of understanding of religion. He goes after each one and cuts each one down. And this week, he's saying, just in case you're sitting here and you're someone who thinks that here's what it is. It's being successful. It's being rich and powerful. Then the preacher wants to say to you, I, wanna, I hate to break it to you, but that too is hevel. It too is vanity. That real satisfaction, true lasting satisfaction, will not, does not, cannot come from money. And he will tell you where it will come from. But first he wants to take a hammer and smash mammon into a thousand pieces. So let's let him do that. He starts by looking at society as a whole. And he says, there's wired into society this love of money. And so don't be surprised. Don't be amazed in society that there's oppression of the poor and injustice. Look at 5 verse 8. <clears throat> if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, 
This isn't the easiest section to translate or to understand, but basically what the preacher's doing is he's stepping back and he's looking at society as a whole. And he's particularly looking at the powers that be and the systems and structures that are in place, and he's saying this, don't be naive. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed that things are set up in society in such a way that all the power and all the wealth gets sucked up the chain to the people who are at the top. When you see that, don't be amazed at that. There's love of money in society, and so don't be amazed that the systems and the structures work in such a way that power and wealth and resources always seem to flow up the chain and up the ladder. There's people up at the top, and one is looking out for the other, and they've got their eye on each other, and everyone's looking out for one another at the top, and no one's looking out for the guy at the bottom. Don't be amazed by that. Don't be shocked by that. That's the way that the world works. And tell me, does not any reading of the newspapers seem to confirm that? You, you hear of corporate greed or some financial scandal will break out. And when the dust settles, what do you always find? Somehow the CEOs at the top walked out with millions, and the guy at the bottom was left holding the bill, and he lost his pension, and he lost his retirement, and they got a fat bonus. That's the way it works. That's the way it always works. It's like the latest E-Trade commercial. Have you seen this one? It's this commercial of this rich old man, and he's on a yacht, and he's partying away, and the E-Trade commercial says this, the harder you work, the nicer the vacation, and then it pauses, and then it says that your boss goes on, right? And you go, that's exactly the way it is. The harder you work, the nicer the vacation that your boss goes on. And so when we hear this part of Ecclesiastes, we're good with the preacher. We say, go get them, preacher. Call out greed on Wall Street. Go get those greedy CEOs all the way at the top. And we're ready to cheer on the preacher. And that's when the preacher hits the brakes. And he turns the whole thing on us. And he says, wait a minute. He says to us, not so fast, because it's not just the people at the top who love mammon, who are devoted to mammon. It's not just their fault that there's oppression and injustice. He turns it on us, and he says, we're devoted to mammon too. He turns it on us and says, listen, love for money is not good for society. Everybody knows that. But love for money is not good for you either, and here's why. Here's why. If I had to summarize what I think the preacher is saying in this passage as to why mammon, why money won't ultimately satisfy you, I can't think of a better way to say it than the words of one Mr. Notorious B.I.G. who said, mo money, mo problems, right? I'm not even cool enough to have known that. I had to Google that just so that you know, right? But here's what the preacher's saying. That's what he's saying. More money brings more problems. Just look at the verses that follow. He says, for example, for one, the more you have, the more people will come after it. He's not even trying to convince you in this passage that money's bad. I told you that. He's just trying to show you practically, here's what happens. The more you have, the more people will come after it. Look, verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? You know what he's saying? You getting more money usually just means that there are now more hands reaching into your pocket for that money. Meaning, you getting a bigger pie usually just means that there are more mouths to feed and more people who pull up a chair with a fork that want a piece of that pie. If you get rich, then suddenly you find that you need maids to clean your house. 
You have to hire someone to trim your lawn. You need a nanny to watch your kids. You need accountants to keep your books. You need financial analysts to invest your money, not to mention that the government also has a very big fork, and they want their cut of your pie as well. The more money you have, the more people that suddenly flock to you that reach into your pocket to pull it out and to enjoy what you've earned. This is why celebrities and athletes always lament how when they come into wealth, suddenly cousins and relatives and distant relatives suddenly show up out of the woodwork with great love and want to be in their life because the more you have money, the more people want it. So the preacher is essentially saying to you, you might as well feast your eyes on your wealth because it's quickly going to go into someone else's mouth and a bunch of it is going to line someone else's pocket. That's the way it works. Or then he says, the more you have, the more you want to have, and the more you have to worry about. Isn't that the way it works? The more you have, the more you want to have, and the more you have to worry about. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The preacher envisions two people. He envisions first a laborer, a worker. And this worker puts in an honest day's work. He comes home exhausted. He doesn't have what the rich and powerful have. He doesn't eat what the rich and the powerful eat. But he has what they don't have. He has contentment. And so he puts his tired head to his pillow and he sleeps like a baby. And then the preacher says, and then there's the rich man, the one who is burning the candle on both ends, who's running on caffeine, who can never stop, who can never quit, who can never sleep, who never enjoys rest. Because there's always more to do, there's always more to accomplish, there's always more to make, there's always more to do to stay on top. You can never stop, never quit, never fail, never underperform, never say no, never rest. There's always more to make. Someone once asked John D. Rockefeller, who was unbelievably rich in his day, they asked him, tell me, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. That's the way it is. Or let me tell you this. A few years ago, there was a Boston College survey, and the survey was conducted among the super rich. Now, what's the definition that Boston College used for the super rich? To qualify for the survey, you needed to have at least $25 million in assets, an average net worth of $78 million with a few billionaires sprinkled in. You see, the, the reason they elevated that definition of super rich was to weed out in the survey anyone who wasn't completely financially secure, meaning short of Armageddon or the apocalypse or the world coming to an end, no matter what happened in the economy, they were still going to eat lobster while we ate sawdust sandwiches. The, the super rich, right? So they conducted this survey. You logged into a computer and the anonymity of your home, totally anonymous, you got to just spew. You got to just vent. You got to just speak of what your life was like. Among the people who made $78 million in assets, I mean $25 million in assets, $78 million in net worth billionaires, the overwhelming majority reported being anxious all the time. The overwhelming majority reported that almost all of them felt like they needed at least 25% more than they had to be really secure. 
One person talked of the most important thing in his life being his Christianity, his love for God and his love for people, and then went on to say also, but until he got a billion dollars in the bank, he wouldn't feel really secure. He went on, the, the, the survey went on to say these people expressed how afraid they were for their children. That here they were and they were going to raise these entitled trust babies. And so they were scared of what their children would become like. And if, on the other hand, they chose not to give that wealth to their children and to charities, that they would then face the disdain and hatred of their children. They talked of fear and insecurity of all their relationships. They didn't know who was their real friend and for what or why. You couldn't let anyone know who you really were or what you were really worth without fear that that would totally change all the relationship. They spoke of hating the holidays because the pressure of the gifts they had to buy was always unbearable. You could never measure up. They felt like they had lost completely any right to complain about anything in life because they were afraid they would be judged and sound ungrateful and nobody could understand them. In a sense, they sounded miserable. And long before the Boston College survey, the preacher is saying, the more you have, the less you seem to rest. It's not just that. The more you have, the more you can lose also. Verse 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The preacher is simply reminding you about money, something you already know, which is the more you have, the more you can lose, something we all know about money, which is it doesn't come with any guarantees. It holds with it no promises to last forever. He envisions here a miser who hoards everything that he has, but then something goes bad, as it often does. The stock market tanks, the economy collapses, Something happens, some scandal, some swindles, some government action, something happens, and now this man who had hoarded all his days finds himself with nothing even to give to his son. You know that's the temporary way of money. This is why Solomon in Proverbs, he has this great proverb. In Proverbs 23, verse 5, you can just hear it. He says this, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Did you hear what Solomon, the richest man who had ever lived, said? You cast but a glance. You set your hope on money for a second, and it feels like the thing just suddenly sprouts wings and takes off into the sky like an eagle. And like an eagle. The more you have, the more you can lose. But also here, the more you have, the more you will eventually leave behind. Listen to verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Did you hear what he said? At the end of the day, no matter what, you're going to die. And when you die you will take none of it with you. As the saying goes, you have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. You came in with nothing, you're going to go out with nothing. John D. Rockefeller was buried the same way the beggar on the street is buried, with nothing. So what is the point of all the toil the preacher wants to know. I mean, you, you think of this. 
When John D. Rockefeller died, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant very wisely answered, all of it. All of it. Just like everyone does. All of it. I mean, wouldn't you think to yourself for a moment, what if you spend your entire adult life banking on your 401k, stockpiling for retirement, and you die one day before you cash it all out? Like, no scandals, no, you've invested wisely, but what are you going to do to prevent death? And so what if you've been pouring everything into that future day and you die one day before? Don't you at that point go, what was the point? I had 70 to 80 laps around the sun. I used the majority of it to get this thing and I died one day before enjoying it all. In fact, isn't that what the greater Solomon, the better preacher Jesus himself said when he was on the earth? He said, there was a fool once. He hoarded all his stuff and he built bigger barns and then bigger barns and then more barns. Oh, fool, what will you do if your life is required from you tonight and you don't live long enough to enjoy any of it? But here's what the preacher says. Here's the worst. Here's the worst because you haven't seen the worst yet. The worst is not that people will come after it, not that you'll always want more of it, not that you'll always worry about it, not that you might lose it, not that you will eventually leave it all behind. You know what's worse than all of that? What's worse than all of that is getting everything you ever wanted, having it all, and then having to learn the hard way that mammon doesn't satisfy. That's the worst. You know what the absolute worst is? Having to log into a computer screen and fill out a Boston College survey anonymously and confess through your computer, I am super rich and miserable. I am super rich and not content. You know what the worst is? Having gotten everything you ever wanted and then getting to the place where you finally go, the cravings didn't go away, the bubbling in my soul didn't stop, the longings didn't stop, I didn't finally say, I'm fulfilled, I'm satisfied, nothing took it away, and I didn't enjoy any of it. This is what he says in 6 verse 1, look at this. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks, catch this, nothing of all that he desires. So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. The phrase there literally is, it's sick. It makes your stomach turn. It's sickening. You know what Ecclesiastes is saying? Here's the worst. Here's the absolute worst. It's sort of like this. Uh, kids, you have to help me for a second. Imagine it's Christmas. You know what the absolute worst thing in the world is? You get this toy that you wanted, right? The best toy in the world. This remote control car, this action figure with lights, and it walks and talks or whatever it is. You get the greatest thing you want. And then do you know what the worst sign in the world on a box is? Batteries not included. Like, I'm positive they do that to torture kids. Like, why would you give this gift with no batteries included, batteries sold separately? So now what do you do? In my house, every year, you tear this thing open. Grandpa bought something or grandma bought something. You tear this thing open, and now there's no batteries. And you search the whole house. There's never any batteries in my house. And so now this gift, which was supposed to be the source of your enjoyment, becomes this source of frustration. Why? Because you literally don't have the power to enjoy it. 
It's in your grasp. You're holding it, but the power to enjoy it is kept from you. And Ecclesiastes is saying, you can get everything you ever wanted, but God designed life to come in a box that says, satisfaction not included. Satisfaction comes separately. You know what the message of Ecclesiastes is? Life under the sun without God is like being given the most expensive fine wine bottle there is and never being given a bottle opener. It's like being able to afford the best restaurant in the world, but you have no taste buds. Life under the sun without God is it's all right there in your grasp, and yet you have not been given the power to be content, to enjoy it, to be satisfied in it. You're banking your whole life on it, and for each one of us that it is something else. And once you get it, it doesn't satisfy Because it never can. It wasn't designed to. It is meant to lead you to frustration until you're satisfied in something else. I don't have time now, but the preacher goes on to speak of how bad life without contentment is. He says life without contentment is so bad in verses 3 to 7 that he says it'd be better to be a stillborn child than to live this miserable life without contentment. If you've ever had a miscarriage or wept through that, this verse hits you like something in the stomach. And I want you to know with, I want you to know the preacher is not trying to minimize the tragedy and pain of a miscarriage, but rather to maximize through a shocking comparison the utter futility of a life without satisfaction, a life lived without God, a life that finds no meaning in stuff, He says to you, you know what? If you live this life, this long, miserable life, and you end up an old, bitter man, in fact, he even says, and nobody's even there for your burial, you die this lonely death, even if you got 2,000 years of that, what would be the point? I mean, better off is a child that doesn't experience any of the misery and futility and hevel of this life and goes straight to its eternal place of rest because rest is what the rich man does not have. Can I say this, Seven Mile Road? We've said it in weeks before. I want to say it one more time. You know what the utter tragedy of this moment would be? The utter tragedy of this moment would be if you heard all of this and the most it did was give you a sermon that didn't bore you and you left here every bit as committed to still being rich and miserable. My nightmare of nightmares for you is that you will come and hear, and I will come and hear, and I at best have tried to give you a good sermon, and you at best have tried to listen, and you will leave with nothing different about the pursuits of your life, of what you're banking on, and hoping in, and trusting in. That would be the nightmare of nightmares. I want you to hear this. Seven Mile Road, you don't have to live trying to get rich. Could you please hear me? No matter what you were taught, no matter what you were raised, no matter what the culture screams at you, no matter what jobs scream at you, could you please hear me? You don't have to feed rats. You don't have to put toy airplanes in temples. You don't have to live trying to be rich. You don't have to trust in money. You don't have to bank your life on your stuff. There's another way to live. There's a better way to live. It's right in the middle of this section. Let me read this and then we'll be done. Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting, this is chapter 5, verse 18. 
What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and land, power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Can I tell you what the anecdote and what the cure and what the alternative in love for mammon is? It's surprising. It's not what you'd expect. It's not, so just be simple. So just be moderate. Even just somehow exalting, just be poor. There's a righteousness in poverty itself. It's not that this passage is anti-wealth. It's just anti-mammon. So the anecdote to a false god is not simplicity. The anecdote to a false god is not poverty. The anecdote to a false god is the true god. It's to replace mammon with God. You know, in five verses, eight and following, God is not mentioned once. And then all of a sudden, he is mentioned six times in the span of five verses. Because all of a sudden, the anecdote is what you are banking on mammon to provide, he will not, but God can. What you are loving money for, what you're ultimately trusting in, can only come through God, namely through his son, Jesus Christ. Just consider for a moment. You love money because it gives you security. It'll keep you safe. It'll ensure that your future is okay and bright. Listen, I could tell you all day of the folly of mammon or to stop being materialistic. It doesn't have the power to change your heart. But you know what can? It's when you begin to see that in the scriptures is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus says, Jesus Christ was so out for my safety and security, he died to keep me safe. That the worst thing that could happen to me was spiritual bankruptcy, a debt I could not pay for which I would have to, collection would come for an eternity in hell. That's the gravest danger that awaited me. And yet Jesus Christ endured harm and danger for my sake to provide for me safety and security from the wrath of God and from eternity in hell. He paid my debt. And because of him, my future is eternally bright and safe and secure. I will live forever as happy as can be. And nothing in creation can stop that. And so I don't need to put my security in stock markets that rise and fall and in a 401k. But I can today be safe in the arms of Jesus, safe from corroding care. Sin can't harm me there if I'm safe in the nail-pierced arms of Jesus Christ. And so I shift security from there to where it is in Jesus Christ. Or you love money because it gives you status. Or for you, it'll remove the shame of being poor, the insecurity of not measuring up, of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, what if you believe the gospel that says Jesus Christ died poor? He became poor so that you could receive riches, so that you could be given a status, so that you could be adorned as a son and daughter of God. You could be seated in the highest places of heaven itself. What if you believed that if he stayed rich, I would die spiritually poor. So he died poor so that I would be spiritually rich. 
so that I would be conveyed with a status and an honor that nothing in the world could take away. You see, the only way Jesus will become your treasure is if you see how he treasured you. He gave till he had nothing left to give. His body was broken and blood was shed. The bank was broken. He was naked on the cross because he treasured you. That has the power to move your heart to treasure him. And when it does, now I don't have to hold on to and hoard my money because it's not my security. Jesus is. And it's not my status. Jesus is. And it's not my honor. Jesus is. The antidote to mammon to life under the sun is to find satisfaction in Jesus, the one beyond the sun, in such a way that you are now content with whatever comes from his hand. You know what the good life is? He says it here. The good life is the man who is so satisfied in the one beyond the sun that whether he's eating lobster for dinner or a crumb of bread, this man bows his head and with a genuine heart of joy gives thanks. And he is so content with the life that Jesus has given to him because his satisfaction is beyond the sun. So we'd say to the preacher, preacher, mammon is a joke. Mammon is a stupid God. There is no satisfaction in money or for that matter in anything under the sun and therefore we look for satisfaction in the one beyond the sun and we are so satisfied in Jesus that we are content with whatever daily gifts he gives to us. And you better believe the preacher would say to us, amen. That is exactly what I was hoping you would see. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you have given us your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now shatter mammon to a thousand pieces. We pray that we would go to war with mammon and fight with every ounce of our being to see him toppled in our life, that our hands would be opened in better generosity, greater sacrifice, more investment for your kingdom, that we would embrace with great contentment whatever you give us, whether that be a great deal or little, that our satisfaction would be found in you. Come do this and more we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to communion, and communion wants to shout to you louder than the preacher has of what Jesus Christ gave up to have you. Here's the symbol of how treasured you are. His body was broken because he'd rather have a broken body than not have you. His blood was poured out because he'd rather die than not have you. He didn't have a treasure that was too much to not give himself for you. And so because Jesus prizes you that way, come and prize Jesus. Come back to this table if you know him, if you've identified with him in baptism, if you know and love the Lord, come. And maybe even come with repentance. As you walk down, with each step, confess that this is a war you are going to fight to trust in the one who gave his life for you. And displace your trust in any other fake God. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, then our invitation to you is not to the table. Rather, instead, it is to Christ himself. The scriptures warn to eat this meal in an unworthy way would be judgment rather than blessing. And so in love for you, our invitation is to come to Christ. If you have any questions of what does that mean? How does someone come to Christ? Then please, you can talk with a member of this church or a pastor, and we'd love to explain that to you as well. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table.